everybody. Can you do me a quick favor? If you like these conversations that we're sharing on Plucking Up, or if the show's motivated you through your own plug-ups, will you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen? It'll encourage more people to tune in, and I really appreciate all your support, and I'm so, so grateful that you are a part of this community. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, journalists, artists, leaders about their mistakes and wrong turns along the way. They're behind the highlight reel scenes, if you will. But not just that, but then also how they moved on and kept going to build beautiful lives of purpose and passion and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. Okay, you guys, (laughs) our guest on this show doesn't need very much of an introduction for most of us because it's Matthew McConaughey. Yes, Academy Award-winning Matthew McConaughey, dazed and confused, a time to kill, Dallas Buyers Club, Oscar Award-winning, number one New York Times bestselling author, Matthew McConaughey. I'll be honest, when I got confirmation that we were interviewing Matthew McConaughey, I immediately (laughs) started sweating. Um, But here's the thing. I have this like weird relationship with famous people in that like the more famous someone is, I don't know, just the more I just want to treat them like a normal human being because we all, what's that phrase? We all put our pants on one foot at a time. That might not be true. Someone out there right now is like, I have this way of putting my pants on that involves hopping into them at once. Anyway, you're special. I love you. But most of us put our pants on one leg at a time. Anyway, that being said, of course, I was a little bit nervous. But this conversation, you guys, I'm just tickled by. I smiled the whole time. And one of the things that you won't be able to see because this is a podcast that I just think is very indicative of who I learned Matthew McConaughey to be on this show. One, we like way ran over time. He was so generous. We were so caught up in this fantastic conversation that we went way over and it was just delightful. It was so fun. Two, I feel like he was my bud. <laughs> it was like he was just so humble and curious and open and generous. Three, Okay, so we were on video, and when I was talking, he was super engaged by either looking at the camera or he was, like, taking notes on our conversation, and he would go back and he would reference those notes and things that I had said and bring them back up, some of which you'll hear in the episode, but a lot of it's going to get edited down because, you know, it was a really long episode because we chatted so much and we had so much fun. But I just think that that is who he is in the world. So curious, so interested, um, always looking for new ideas and ways to see the world and how he can learn and grow. And I think his book, Green Lights, if you haven't read it yet, is really a reflection of his life of reflection, which is pretty cool. So anyway, I was delighted. I was tickled. I had such a good time. Um, Brief warning. I do think there's a bit of salty language in the episode. (laughs) Um, So as always, listener discretion is advised if you have 
tiny children and you're averse to them hearing salty language. All right, without further ado, my conversation with the one, the only, Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) I didn't think I was going to do that. It just came out. I couldn't help it, okay? Matthew, thank you so much for joining me on the Plucking Up podcast. Good to be here with you, Liz. Here's the thing. You just wrote a whole book about this, right? I don't know how many words the book was. 50, 60,000 word book. Um, and a lot of it was about your upbringing, about your childhood. Um, so if you are all really interested, you should go read Green Lights. I just finished it. I took a week-long vacation, and Green Lights was my vacation companion. It was a great read, so there's lots and lots of stories. But for the purposes of this show, can you take us back and give us a little overview of your origin story, where you came from, how you were raised, yeah. and really kind of the earliest inklings in hindsight, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty yeah. about things that you saw in your childhood that now you can say like, oh, I kind of see how those threads were woven and how I ended up who I am today. Sure. So my mother had, my mom and dad had my oldest brother, who's now nicknamed Rooster, who's 66. And they tried to have another child unsuccessfully. He wanted a little brother for his 10-year-old birthday present. So they went and adopted Pat from the Methodist home in Dallas. They continued to try to have kids. If it's not working, all of a sudden, mom's belly starts growing. In early 1969, oh my gosh, what's this? Must be a tumor. For one month, two month, three month, four month, five months, she thinks it's a tumor. Well, wait a minute, this isn't a tumor. Uh, well, what the heck is it? Then my dad's like, we've been trying for years. Who's it? Yeah, whose is it, Katie? You know, <laughs> they had that conversation. And uh, November 4th, 1969, I come out and greet the world. So I was the accident that came on. I was raised sort of much more by my mother. His work got, uh, my dad got more successful in work. He was on the road more. Meaning, was he there for me? Yes, he was there for me. Was he my baseball coach like he was my older brother? No. Okay, so, but yes, he was there. He was not a a gone dad to work. Um, But I was, my older middle brother, Pat, the adopted one, was my hero, the one I looked up to. We were separated by six, seven years so there wasn't that sort of competition. He was the dominant mm-hmm. brother mm-hmm. by far and could could win or beat me at whatever it was. So we didn't have, we didn't fight. I looked up to him, but he also was my hero. He raised me. He taught me what mm. cool was. He taught me how to ask a girl out for a date. He taught me how to dance. He gave me my first beer. He taught me how to be a gentleman. He taught me, you know, that it's a good idea to go buy a bottle of G. Your hair smells terrific. So your hair <laughs> smells good. <laughs> Those kind of things. And he looked after me. He really looked after me. Um, and, and then I was also raised by my mom. She was my kindergarten teacher. Um, oh, wow. And the joke would be like, I was the mama's boy. And hey, you know what? I was. The joke would be, I was the golden boy. Boy, I'm getting away with so much. And you know what? Yes, I was. I, I learned from my two older brothers. They paved a wide swath <laughs> for me. I learned how to get away with things better than they did. Yeah. Now let me get into the, the, the years of what I learned that I look back on. As you know, reading the book, my parents' form of punishment and consequences, if you did wrong, was corporal. Mm-hmm. Spin over, you got the belt, bam, get it over with. It hurt at the time, never injured, but it was quick. It hurt, and it was over. No grudges, never talk about it again. Now, the first three sort of belts on my backside were for saying, I hate you to my brother, for saying, I can't, and for lying. And when I look back now, and even before now, I even had a hunch then 
I don't remember any of the butt whoopings. What I do remember is immediately mm. going in my childhood mind, wait a minute. If I'm hating, believing I can't, or not telling the truth, I'm receiving some pain. So what's the antonym of this? Mm-hmm. Love, believe you're having trouble instead of saying you can't, mm-hmm. and telling the truth instead of lying. Well, it became very clear to me very long, oh, those are three values that my parents are trying to instill in me. To negotiate life as a young person, as a young man, after I'm long after I'm out of the house. Mm-hmm. And boy, those are still paramount, you know, as far as values and ones that I'm trying to pass on to my own children. Yeah. So given that, okay, so there was corporal punishment in your home. I've listened to a couple of interviews that people have done after the show, and it feels like a big theme that people bring up is like, Matthew, do you categorize that as abuse? I've heard like six people ask you that. And yeah. every time you're like, no, I don't. And there's this sense that like it was my experience, so I get to define what it was. Damn right. Maybe you would have been in the exact same experience and you might have a different story, but this is my narrative. This is mine. Yeah. Yeah. This is mine. And I don't. And again, I'm not. uh, And I know exactly what you're going for because today, especially people lean into like, well, wait a minute. Technically, that is a few. No. Like I said, we were never injured. I don't remember now any of the butt weapons. What I do remember was the, the look on my dad's face when I lied to him. He was brokenhearted. That shame of letting him down. I don't remember the belt. Yeah. Over with. So, no, it was not abuse. And no one can tell me it was. And I'm not in denial of that. It could be for someone else in a given circumstance. I did not have abusive parents. My parents loved hard. There was a hell of a lot more hugs than there was butt whooping between all of us and my mother and my father and everything. My mother actually says, I wish you would have told a few more stories of the hugs. And I go, I know, I know, mom. I said, you know what, though? The reason I tell those stories that are often have violence in them and as love stories between you and dad, between how y'all raised us, is because they were times where the love in the family was tested the most, Mm. but never had a chance of failing. And that's, I think, why... It was, they're the least kumbaya stories. They're the mm-hmm. stories where we're not getting along so well. But the fact that we were going to stick together was never in question. Yeah. And I think that's why I tell them. But I'm curious. I've heard you say, you know, with your kids that you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm choosing to do that in a different way. Yeah. And I guess my question is, why? Why do it yeah. differently? What's the yeah. thing that's actually causing you to say, like, it's a good question. if your narrative is this was like, look, this made me who I am and I love who I am. I'm curious about, like, why, but we're choosing to do it differently. Yeah. Well, look, I may be arrogant, but I'm trying to hang my hat on a bit of evolution. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, it's how, you know, society has gone. Is it the right way? I don't know. Again, I'm not judging my parents the way they disciplined us. And I'm not judging how we do it today. I'm not sure which one's the better one. Right now, to say it's fait complete, no, this is a, it's better to talk it all out and never give your kid a, something to pop on the backside. I don't know if it's better. It's what I'm trying to do. It's what Camilla and I are trying to do. And it's a test. It's more work this way. Mm-hmm. It's more work to spend the time to try and help your kids understand why, to understand the consequences of their actions, to understand why that act is not going to give them ROI in their life mm-hmm. later. But right now, it ain't going to give you ROI in this household because that's not how we roll. <laughs> yeah. And if you can't play by the team rules in the house, okay, then you're going to go without these things. Now, we all know if you're going to ground someone or take screen timer, you're going to go without these things. That's more work on the parents. I hate taking away screen time. That's punishment for me. That's a whole lot more work. 
truly though, you know? But here's what's interesting and what I really like about this is I think obviously we're just using the microcosm of parenting to talk about a larger, I think, philosophy right now, which is on the one hand, you are embracing let's call it progress, evolution, experimentation. Let's take in new information and let's try to see if maybe there is a better way of doing things and and taking an active position and moving towards something else without necessarily full stop, one, confidence, (laughs) like a a degree of curiosity and experimentation, and two, without completely saying because I'm moving forward, that means this was 100% wrong. Bingo. Like creating space for some of that like <laughs> nuance. Yeah. And that, and you, you said at the top, we're talking about parenting, but you just talked about what's going on in the world and what we could use more of. You can progress and try something out, but that doesn't negate or in, in the new world terms cancel. doesn't mean you omit, illegitimize any way it was done or said or happened before. I think there's an arrogance in that, and I'm not willing to be that arrogant. And especially mm-hmm. on the on the terms of how my mom and dad did, I'm going like, I mean, for a lot of intents and purposes, I turned out all right. My brothers did too. I know a lot of friends who got that. It was clear. The punishment was clear. It was over with. My parents had a good argument with this too. They said, look, we're not going to ground you because that takes away your time. And your time is your most valuable asset you have in your life. So bend your butt over, take a few licks, and it's over with. We won't talk about it again. And right after it's done, after you clear your tears, we'll go across town and get a cheeseburger. And never bring it up again. There was some genius to that. And if listen to this. If a brother in my family brought up, like, say you got in trouble for going in my brother's room when I wasn't supposed to be in his room, old brother room. Well, yeah, I know I'm not supposed to go there. I messed with his stuff, and, and, and I got a whoop. Well, after the whooping, if my brother brought that up, like a week later, yeah, it's like that time you went in my room. He then would get in trouble because you uh, 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 that was over with. We handled that. That was done. That was in the rearview mirror. So it was clear. That's interesting. Well, as a non-spanking parent who also highly values like efficiency and direct communication, it does. <laughs> there is a level of you see the efficiency gains in that. Yeah. So you graduated from high school, you went to college. Give us an overview of this vocational journey. Uh, You didn't set out to be an actor. No. You didn't like come out of the womb knowing like, this is my passion. No. This is what I'm going to do. Research states that about 20% of people have that experience in life. I literally just got off an interview with a journalist who's like, I was six. I knew I was going to be a human rights journalist. That's the minority experience. 20% of the people know what they want to do at an early age and end up doing it? Yeah. 20% of people would say, I kind of came into the world with this sense that, like, I knew what I wanted to do. And then the other 80% is going, like, I have no idea. I can't look back at my childhood and see this super clear thread. I did not come out of the womb wildly passionate about something. My hypothesis is that we tell the 20% story a lot more even though it's the minority story and it leaves the 80% of us who don't have that experience who are a little bit more like, I tried this and then this thing happened and then I leaned into this. I think it's one of the main contributors to why, especially like my generation, I'm a quote unquote millennial, so much anxiety and fear and this sense that it's like this looming, like I missed the boat. I haven't found my purpose. I don't know what I'm passionate about. I'm the broken one. 
versus saying like, maybe the way we're talking about this is a little bit broken. Right. And from reading green lights, I'm going to diagnose you here. You can disagree with me. I'm putting you in the 80% camp that it's like. Uh, I'm in the 80% that I thought would, until you told me it was 80%, I thought was about 96%. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. It is the majority experience. So tell us a little bit about that, like, path for how you went from A to B. Well, so in high school, I was already leaning into, before I get in trouble, before I get the belt, let me discuss, let me debate, let me (laughs) me make my stance, let me make my argument. And my mom was coming into an age when she would start to listen. And my dad was like, God. No, are you kidding me? This kid, he's going to talk you down. Can he Too many him? words. He's snaking out, you know, but I was already debating. Yeah. So it became the thing around the house. Jeez, oh man, you got, you can pose good arguments. And yeah, damn it, you're, now I'm pissed off because what you said made sense. Why did I listen? You know, so it became, be the lawyer. Oh, great, mm-hmm. lawyer, great. Mm-hmm. That's a vocation. Maybe I have an innate ability for that. Be the lawyer. So that's just was felt comforting to go, I think I know what I'm good at. That's what I'll go chase. Mm-hmm. So I uh, um, graduate high school. Then I went away to Australia for the year, which was a great year. I won't go deep into that, but that was a year of, I think I want to be a lawyer, but let me go explore while mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. the world, find myself, see some other part of the world. But I come back to college and I start to realize in college what does this college degree really mean? <laughs> you know, what does that piece of paper mean? I start to think, well, law school, when you get out of here, you graduate. And I remember thinking, ah, you're going to be about 30 when you're able to put your imprint in society. And I was like, do you really want to spend all your 20s learning? I was mm. like, uh-uh. I'd rather take a chance to go find out and maybe put an imprint, have a chance to put an imprint in society earlier or put my mark on it. And so I had been writing which started in, in earnest in that year in Australia. Mm-hmm. I started sharing some short stories and things with a friend of mine from high school, Rod mm-hmm. Bendler, who was at NYU Film School. Okay. okay. So he was the guy who introduced me to the arts in high school, mm. where the arts were always, oh, that's a Saturday afternoon hobby. You don't pursue the arts as a job and a vocation. That's irresponsible. Yeah. Is the, is the thinking in my head and thinking in my family, or so I thought. So I all of a sudden say, oh, man, I don't want to go to, I think I want to go be a storyteller. I want to go to film school. How can I do that? I ask, I call, I get permission from my father and a great story that I share in the book about when he told me not to half-ass it. Mm-hmm. I am now choosing an independent path that was never expected of me. It is in the creative arts. It's in filmmaking. Again, not in front of the camera yet. Not, not mm-hmm. brave enough to even admit mm-hmm. I want to maybe be an actor yet. Not even brave enough to dream it. Yeah. So what did I do? I just put myself in the storytelling business behind the camera. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things to circle back a little bit to your letter relationship with your friend, was his name Pat? Is that what you said? No, that's your brother's name. Rob. There's this concept that I've heard, I didn't make it up, that's low stakes, high frequency for how we build passion and purpose. So low stakes, no one's really watching. There are very low expectations on you, but there is a high frequency of engagement. And I thought about that in Greenlights when you talked about these letters that y'all wrote back and forth to each other. To me, it felt like it fit that definition of experimenting with communicating, writing, storytelling in a very, it was low stakes. It was you and a guy from high school, right? right. It's not public. You're not trying to get published. You right. don't have all these eyes on your work. 
it's but you're doing it over and over and over again. And it kind of seems like that, like it seems so small, right? Like writing letters back and forth to your buddy, but building that like low stakes, high frequency kind of like habit of forming a craft habit. Well, that's what you look. That's where the book came from. It's from 36 years of journals I've been keeping. Yeah. I never yeah. had a thought of that. Did any of this become a book? I was like, no, I'm writing it for for me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, 10 years ago, I started to think, hey, maybe something in there's worth sharing. And I was like, mm-hmm. ah, I'll die in a martyrdom if there's something worth sharing. Camillo put it out or something like yeah. that. But I never got objective about like, yep. hey, is this something that could be in demand? Is there something to supply and share? No. And that would be the low stakes because the mm-hmm. stakes rise when you go, now I'm putting my pen to paper because I need to write my next book. That's yep. higher stakes. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just doing it to deal. Totally. I think one of the things that's happening right now in culture is that we all know, like, the gatekeepers to having a public platform have been completely removed. So it used to be, even, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, you wanted to have a public platform. You needed to get a publisher. You needed to have a TV show. You needed to have a radio show. Somebody else had to say yes. Now we live in this world, and I think there's great parts about it, where literally anybody can put their work out for public consumption. I think one of the detriments of that evolution is that the low stakes, high frequency way of engaging a craft has been diminished because people are immediately like, it doesn't matter unless it's public. So instead of spending years writing letters back and forth to my buddy, I'm going to start on day one with a blog. And then on day one, after my first post, I'm going to look at my analytics and see how many people have looked at it. And (laughs) is it worth it? Does it matter? Is anybody listening? You're getting feedback right out of the gate that I think can really inhibit our creative process when it's just like, I'm immediately putting this out for consumption and feedback. And it's something that I think is like contributing to this like loss of cultivating a craft and curiosity before it's out in the public for other people to comment on and consume. Absolutely. You bring up a couple of really interesting things that we could deconstruct for hours, which is also at younger ages when you're still finding your identity and you're, while you're, while you're having a conversation with yourself, trying to figure out who you are, you're immediately exporting it and getting millions of strangers opinions. So they're coming back telling you how to feel about yourself. Yeah. It's not a fair mirror. It's either, you know, I always like like talking about mirrors. It's it's either a mirror like uh, in the Gucci store in Beverly Hills that makes you look better than you actually do. Mm, Okay, that's smart, Or the funny mirror at the circus that makes you look a lot worse than you do. I mean, so it's not a fair, it's not a realistic actual mirror of who you are. But yet we're looking at it. And we can say intellectually that, oh, I should be immune to that. I'm 51, I've made 50 movies, won an Academy Award. A bad review feels worse than a good one. Mm-hmm. And for someone to say something about me that may be completely untrue, still mm-hmm. physically penetrates me. Physiologically, you have a reaction to it. To at least mm-hmm. go, there are people in the world out there that are thinking this way of me. And then you go out and you walk and people look at you and go, was that one of them? It's a slippery slope of yep. insecurity. And not a place to find and get and our identity. we're having like 13-year-olds do that. So I read a study that was about the actual neurological, physiological changes that our brains have gone through over the last like probably 10 years. And it's examining dopamine release. And so I don't know if it was actually 10 years ago. Let's say 15 years ago, maximum, let's say you're climbing a mountain, okay? Literally climbing a mountain. 
maximum dopamine release happens at summit. You have climbed the mountain. You are there with your buddies, by yourself, whatever. You look out, like just dopamine going, 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 going. Yeah. Then several years later, it starts to evolve. And they're seeing that, okay, you climb the mountain, you summit. That dopamine release actually isn't happening till you take the photo. Ah, yes. Till you take the photo and you prove, I did it. I summited the mountain. Years later, brain actually evolving. Summit the mountain. Dopamine isn't releasing. Take the photo. Dopamine isn't releasing. Post the photo. Dopamine release. <laughs> Not kidding you. Not kidding you. This years later, years later, Summit the mountain, take the photo, post the photo, dopamine release not happening until the photo gets liked, until it's getting commented on, until you're like receiving that feedback. So it's like our actual brains in a alarmingly, I think, short amount of time are evolving to like how we experience emotions, how we experience the world, how we know ourselves not being like full cycle or complete until other people's opinions approval are integrated into that like process. And I think about to your point. Yeah. I'm like, I'm in my mid thirties. I feel like I have a pretty firm grasp on like, you know, who I am and still, still exactly to your point. I read a bad review. I get whatever it is. It just feels like bad. And then I question myself, like, should I have written whatever it is? Yeah. And it's like, we're asking a 13 year old to go through that. Like, it just feels not to sound like an old person who's like, I worry about the next generation and it's hell in a handbasket. No. But I do think that there are really big implications. Not sound like whatever age you are and be quite concerned with the next generation. And and I'll do the same. I think more of a, this is, it's so true. And you just, that little graph you just put together of the evolution of our own personal dopamine release is scary, but I've got to, even in this conversation, get past the, oh my God, I'll scare you and go, no, that's what's happening. Yeah. That's like the truth. So let's look that in the eye yeah. and go, okay, so what do, if we believe that that's not the truest way to understand the truest way, and I think true is the right word mm-hmm. instead of right way, the truest mm-hmm. way to get our mm-hmm. own sense of significance or sense of approval, what do we need to rejigger here? What do we need to re-engineer? Because I don't know. Are we going to peek out after what's after liked? What's after being liked? Is it a number of likes? Then is yes. it, are we going to sit there and go, then now life's just a bummer because I can't get off to anything and then go back to, yeah. ah, the summit feels good. Mounting the summit feels good again. I don't know. Yeah. That's a scary thing to trust in. Okay, so... You've got quite a highlight reel. You know, we could go and do the fancy, like, here's all the movies and books sold (laughs) and blockbuster hits and the whole deal. Yeah. But we all know that behind every highlight reel, I firmly believe in, you know, I'm on season two just of this podcast, but I've made it a goal. And I just love, I love learning people's stories. I love interviewing people. And an, an undeniable truth that I have found is that the most successful people I've ever met by far have the most failures uh, because they're the ones who take the most risks. <laughs> um, they are the ones that put themselves out there. And a lot of success, I think, really does come down to this like numbers game, right? Right. So I would love 
for you if you would be willing to share what we lovingly in this community refer to as a pluck up. Yes. Um, in in the hope. Okay. Okay. Let's dive in. I don't even need to. I don't even need to explain. He's chomping at the bit, people. We're plucking up. The year is the. Oh my God! What an idiot! <laughs> the year is nineteen, I think ninety-five. Okay. 95. I'm in Hollywood. Okay. Days Confused has come out. I've done okay. this film, Angels in the Outfit. Just did Boys on the Side. Played this very conservative character named Abraham Lincoln, who took himself very seriously and very earnestly. And I come out of that role, and evidently that role is sort of still in my body because all of my auditions I'm going in, I'm still being very kind of earnest and conservative and not really taking risk. And I'm not getting the part. I'm getting a call back, but I'm not getting the part. I go for about a year not getting the part. And I'm, for the first time, starting to, like, someone's teaching me a little bit about acting. Mm. This thing that I've been instinctually doing that I never studied. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to get a little conscious and aware of how this works. Oh, maybe start learning my craft. Now, as we all know, if you have an instinct and innate ability to do something, and then you have, then you go to the book, and then you go to intellectualize it. There's a awkward period mm-hmm. <laughs> where you're in your head. They're like, "What am I doing? I'm not. I lost my instincts. They sublimated each other." Well, mm-hmm. usually, if we stick to the path of learning something, we come out the other side and go, "Oh, now it's mm-hmm. instinctual again." but I'm more armed than I was before. Stage two of the learning journey. Well, I was in the stage of I'm just now becoming conscious of what I'm doing and I'm not doing it as well. You are consciously incompetent. Stage two of the learning journey is conscious incompetence. Yes. Great. So you're in unconscious incompetence where you're like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I have instincts and I feel good about it. Then you're like, right. oh, I know that I'm not good. <laughs> and stage two is it's the hardest. It's where our egos, our insecurities, it's where imposter syndrome, stage two is rough. This is where I was. You're in stage two. Got okay. It. So I'm not getting roles. Uh, I'm wondering what my problem is. I'm leaving auditions going, damn it, you have you, you left something in the bag. You should have taken a chance there. You didn't. You were tight. And I was like, you know what the problem is, Matthew? This learned bullshit. You're getting too heady. You need to go back to how you did it in the beginning. Dazed and confused, man. You, you had three lines. You worked for three weeks. You just inhabited your man, Wooderson, and you just showed up and said, press record. And you just improvised and riffed, and it was natural. That's the kind of actor you are, Matthew. So I get offered this role in this movie. I, it's a blind offer. I don't have to audition for it. Wow. It's a role, this drug runner on the southern border in, 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 in Texas, and the coyotes come to bring his drugs across. Instead of paying for him, he... Shoots them all and steals the drugs. That's the basic little scenario. So I tell myself, that's all I want to know. I'm not reading the script. I'm not even reading (laughs) the scenes. That's all I need to know. I know what I want. I know what I need. I know what my obstacle is. And I know what I'll do to get it. I'm going to go be that guy and do what that guy would do. That's I will. So I don't read the script. I don't read the scene. I show up (laughs) on set. South Texas, we show up on the day. I'm feeling very confident about my approach. I see the other actors lined up. I have my mark. I'm going like, uh, I haven't looked at anything. I'm just going to do what my man would do because I know my man. Instincts go with it. Well, right before we're about to say action, do the take, this PA walked by and goes, Miss McConaughey, would you like to see some sides, which is a small version of the scene. And for I guess I was feeling a little insecure about my plan because I said, <laughs> yeah, let me have a peek. Right here as I'm about to go, right, start game time. Let me just have a peek. And again, my thinking, I remember very clearly in my head, is look, it's okay to look at the script now, right before you're about to shoot the scene, because look, if it's written well, it'll be like, well, that's what you would say anyway, of course. 
And if it's not written well, I just do what I would do. So I open up the side. I look down to my side. I'm standing on my mark. Page one. Page two. Page three. Page four. Uh, hey, can I get 12 minutes? Now, I asked for 12 minutes because I thought that would be not enough time to be inconsiderate to the crew. But I also asked for 12 minutes because in my mind at the time, I thought that 12 minutes would be enough to learn a four-page monologue by my character in the script in Spanish. Because, <laughs> hey, I, 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 I took a semester of Spanish in the 11th grade. I went, I went to Spain that time. I went to Madrid for a week. I, I can do this. So I go walk off, and I immediately feel this beat of that sweat. Literally, I feel nauseous right now. Oh, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Beat of sweat on the back of my neck, and I'm just like, <laughs> keep it cool, keep it cool. That One of Abe Lincoln's quotes is actually going through my mind. Don't speak up and, and prove that you're a fool prove right now. That just you're shut a fool. up, yep. and they don't know. So just keep it up. So I walk away for 12 minutes. It was not inconsiderate to the crew, but it was also not enough time to learn a damn four-page monologue in Spanish. Turns out. Well, I came back. I don't know what I did in the scene. I've blacked it out. I don't know. I've never seen it. I blacked it out. I know I didn't do a four-page monologue in Spanish. Um, I did something, but I made it through that day without letting anyone know I came in here completely unprepared. I had a bright idea. Oh, that interesting. Was so you didn't you didn't like you didn't fess up. It was like no. you told the story and you you went in a direction. I just did what I did, and then when they had when they, the director came up with I think questions, if you had, I would just like, yeah. Got it, my man. Yeah, <laughs> I, complete. I mean, just couldn't look anyone in the eye. And then when I got out of there that day and went and cleaned up and couldn't look anyone in the eye because I was embarrassed and did not feel like I did a good job. I don't even know what I did. I got in my car, left set, and I drove down the street and I drove down the road and it was on a highway out in the middle of the country. And I pulled over on the side of the road and I started, I started bawling. Mm. And it was just like, dude, you, mm. that was self inflicted. Pain. No, 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 Matthew. That's you got to prepare to have your freedom. Mm, Again, you got to mm. take responsibility to have your freedom. You just, oh, I never want to feel that way again. Mm. I hated that feeling. And yes, I just use that word. I hated that feeling. Yeah. The embarrassment, the shame, the fact that here I am and I have a job and an opportunity that that I'm learning to like, that I fell into, that I'm told I'm good at. And I had a bright idea, which was a half-ass idea of, of complacency to come in and try this. Like, no, no, not the right. So I, I hammered myself. Especially after a year of not getting it and wanting it. Right. Of like you experienced a year of going into auditions and not getting it. And then the deal that you got, the part that you got, there is a specific, I identify so deeply like, I think when something happens to me, my like resiliency, if I'm like, I could not have seen that coming, you did the best you could, I can have grace on myself, I can be pretty gritty and resilient. When a situation falls firmly in, yeah. you did that. Like you did that to yourself. Every ounce yeah. of shame, embarrassment, failure, you did that. You chose that. You willingly walked into it, especially when it wasn't even like accidental, when you're yeah. like, you had a good plan. You sold a really good story to yourself 
about how that was going to go. I know I can spiral into some like self-loathing of just like if I can live the rest of my life avoiding that. Now, let's parlay that though into why that pain and guilt is so valuable. Because when it's done unto us, yeah, hey, I didn't have to. Come on, man. Why is that the way the world works? Really? You don't want to play like that? Yeah, you can stuff it off. I didn't do it. But when we do it and we look in the mirror and go, you're responsible for that. You're responsible for that F up. There's no one else to blame. The pain, the guilt, the embarrassment, the tears. They hurt hard enough. You change. Yeah. You don't want that feeling again and you do something about it. Mm-hmm. I know from that day right there, I said, no, from now on, I'm going to be over prepared. From now on, I'm coming in to every scene with four options of the truth. I'm going to know this damn thing in Spanish, Mm. Liberian, (laughs) Swedish, and French. Mm -hmm. And I might wrap them all in the same riff. Mm -hmm. Come on. Mm -hmm. And and now I have the freedom to go play. Yeah. Maybe not do any of those, but man, am I armed. Yeah. So it led to, for instance, now especially when you look in the rearview mirror, you see that's all a science. It led to... I got called in for a role in A Time to Kill. It was like the seventh, eighth lead. It was the part that Kiefer Sutherland ended up doing. This clan member in the movie. I meet with the director, Joel Schumacher, about that role. But in that meeting, before that meeting, to go meet him about this small role, I not only read the script, I read the book. Mm-hmm. And I was clear that I wanted to play the lead. And I was going to go in this meeting Throw out there that I wanted the lead of Jake Brigance and be ready for any question of why, any question of the story, have opinions on the character, the arc, the scenarios, and I was ready. Which you would not have been had you not experienced the pain. I think I would have read that part. Said, yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, I could do that. Let me study this part and go talk about that. But yeah. no, I said, let's read the whole script. Let's know the entire thing. Let's go read more than the script. Let's go read the book. Yeah. Let's go study the book, study more than need to. So I was prepared to go, oh, I actually want the lead role and I'll tell you why. Yeah. I do think that there's something really key too about you mentioned you left. You couldn't look people in the eyes. You left the set. You went and you pulled over on the side of the road and you bawled. And I think that that is a pretty key part of the story because I think the other way that we can air is like I messed up. And I'm just going to tell myself a story. I'm going to find the lesson so quickly in it so that I don't feel stupid, so that I don't have to feel ashamed or maybe blame it on other people. Somebody should have told me. Whatever it is, like if you don't allow yourself to feel those really low lows, like you had to kind of make a choice to pull over the car and say like, I'm going to let myself ball about this. I'm going to let myself feel really bad about how that went. If you move too quickly through that, it doesn't change you in the long run. You don't prepare wildly for the next right. thing that gives you the confidence to ask for the big part, that gives you the competency yep. to answer the questions. Like the whole process doesn't happen. No. There's a self-knowledge and vulnerability that's required. 100%. In that. And there is where I think, you know, I bring up a metaphor, which is the premise, one of the basic premises of, of my book, Green Lights. The art is what do we do with the yellow light? Mm, yeah. I hit the yellow light in the moment. I wasn't prepared. Oh, my gosh. Then I got through it. I don't know what I did. It was embarrassed, all those things. Now, if I go, whoo, got rid of that one and just drive off, that means I pressed the gas and pulled into the green light, just blew the yellow light, right? But Mm -hmm. I said, no, the pulling over, the bawling, the pain, the sleepless night was putting myself in a red light, letting the yellow light turn red and going, no. That was a real problem. I don't ever want to feel that again. What are we going to do, McConaughey, so we don't feel that again? 
we ought to make a new plan here, bud. That was me putting myself in the red light. And yeah. Going, I'm, <laughs> that felt bad enough. I don't want those consequences again. Yeah. Sometimes when we hit that yellow light in life, we need the red that's coming to dwell in it. Yeah. And on the other side, you know, the opposite of what you just said is sometimes we're in places in our life where we're looking for the red light, where we want to slow down at every yellow and create a crisis where maybe there's really one that doesn't deserve our credit. Mm. You know, that's the other side of the spectrum. That Sometimes you approach the yellow and you need to look and go, I ain't giving that shit credit. I'm pressing the gas. Yeah. Boom. Now, either to the extreme of slowing down at every yellow and letting it be red, we dwell, we wallow, we become victimized, the weight of the world is on us, and all of a sudden we're paralyzed under all the weight. Yeah. That's no good. Yeah. On the other side, if you're running every yellow light, you're not growing. You're not yeah. evolving. You're, you're just like, okay, you're just in constant denial, spinning in circles. Yeah. And that's not the way to be either. Yep. I think that that balance between, I think it requires self-knowledge. Yeah. I think it requires vulnerability. And I think when we talk about vulnerability in modern culture right now, which I'm really grateful we are, that's becoming a lot more of a conversation. A lot of it, I feel like, is person to person. I'm going to be vulnerable with you, Matthew. But also, we have to learn how to be vulnerable with ourselves. Like, we have to choose, like, I'm going to allow myself to feel that feeling. Yeah. And that's scary. And that's vulnerable because I'm, like, opening a door and I don't know how to close it or when it's going to close. But then I think we have to couple that with a sense of autonomy, right? There isn't this helpless, like, well, once I open the door to that emotion, that emotion now owns me right. and I am subject to it ruling me of, well, if I feel really sad about that, I'm just going to have to wallow and I'm going to have to give up this dream and I'm never going to be an actor. And this was the nail in the coffin and nobody will ever respect me again. And so I'm just going to never try again because that felt really bad. And so it's like coupling that really deep sense of your own humanity and vulnerability with this sense of like, and now I get to choose what to do with that emotion that right. I just experienced. You know, but the, but the challenge is when we're feeling low or inconfident or insignificant, our tendency, our brains start to go, oh, if I let myself go there, that will become my being. That's just how I'll be. If I let myself, I open the cage from, let that monster out. I have to live with that monster forever. That's just who mm -hmm. I'll be. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, I think, more true. No, you then let it out. You get to choose now. Look mm -hmm. it in the eye. Look that problem, that hardship, that monster, that vulnerability in the eye. It gets weaker than it yeah. was in the cage. And you get to choose that. But it's not your existence in the same way that when things are going so well. Mm -hmm. When things are going so well, we think that may be our existence. Mm -hmm. And that's not true either. Yep. That delineation between circumstance and identity. I think if we can figure that out, huh. we're like in a really good place in life, <laughs> which I don't. I mean, I can, I can intellectualize it and say I understand it, but then still in that moment, like the leap from I did a sucky thing to I am a sucky, sucky failure, stupid person. It's such a natural thing, but they're two very different. You know, it's like, I don't want to move through life being someone who says like, I'm good. I'm good. I don't hurt people. I don't make mistakes. Like right. if I do something and that that's your problem, like I think those people end up being really harmful, sociopathic, destructive you. people. Like there's something really important about feedback and about knowing as a human how you exist in the world, how that impacts other humans. So it's like, I don't want to exist in a world where I'm just like, I'm me and, you know, I'm just going to do me and plow through life. 
But it's about like, can I acknowledge like, oh, I did a thing. I made a mistake. I hurt somebody. I went in the wrong direction and really hold that, like hold the weight of it, hold the emotion of it without then leaping to, therefore, I'm bad. I'm worthless. I am a shameful person. I'll never get over this. I'll never be okay. I'll never create again, you know, whatever it is. I've always been thought this is a really important, simple thing to do, but if someone lies, don't call them a liar. Mm-hmm. Say, oh, no, you told an untruth right here. That yep. was not true. That was a lie. Yep. That's very different than saying you are a liar. That's a blanket statement mm-hmm. where we go, again, this is my existence. This is who I am. I am nothing but a pitiful liar. No, I lied. No, I screwed up. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. failed at that moment. But let's be specific about that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then it's a moment in time. It's a note in the song of our life instead of going, I'm a liar. Your natural tendency when someone comes after your whole being, yeah. I think it's just a survival tactic to defend yourself and just like deny everything about the allegations, you know, because it's big and it's heavy and like that feels really bad. Versus like when you can come to me and say like, hey, this specific action or inaction word or lack of words had this specific impact on me. All of a sudden, I have so much more freedom to say like, oh, interesting. Tell me more about that. And I'm really sorry for that. And that was a mistake. But it's like I think we come in guns a blazing and it's just like and that put automatically puts the other person in the defense of like, I have to choose between like, I'm an awful, terrible person. And then I think that that's what results in all of the defensiveness. And then we don't learn because it's just like, well, they just think I'm a bad person. They're too sensitive. It's their issue, whatever story we can tell ourselves so that we don't have to actually hear feedback and change that difference. And we also, you know, there's so many fun ways to unpack this because we also, when we throw it on someone else, in some ways, subliminally, we're defending ourselves from that side of our self when we were the liar or the mm. cheat that we don't like. Yeah. And when we see something in somebody else that we don't like in ourselves, we come at fangs out. Mm-hmm. And we're, I'm going to condemn you because I condemning you makes me not condemn myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just literally on my last interview with this journalist who's a Muslim, she was talking about how there's this like kind of prayer or like way of being that exists that talks about how you always start with yourself, like start with yourself, start in your own home, then go to your community, then like broader community and then the world. But this concept of like always being willing to ask the question of yours. It's obviously, it's so much easier to point stuff out in other people, you know? And then it's so, it's scary to do that in ourselves, but it gets less scary when we can remember that there is a disconnect between what we do and who we are. It's, um, I call that trying to close the gaps. Meaning, for instance, when I go in my vocation of going filming, if I play a character, there's what I want to do. There's what I actually do do. Mm-hmm. There's what gets recorded. Mm-hmm. There's what's get edited, and there's how you receive it. Mm-hmm. That's quite a few filters, and sometimes yeah. those gaps have big gaps. I'm trying to say, oh, let's close those gaps. And yeah. I use film as the metaphor, but also, boy, what a great thing if we can close those gaps in life mm, between who we want to be, who yeah. we are, how it's context and place, and where how it's re- you know how it's put out there. How it's edited. Did you hear all of it? Did you hear just some of it? Or did I raise my voice? What was the volume? What mood were you in? How it's received? You know, it's like 
you know, the great thing about emojis, it's like, <laughs> you know, you joke with somebody in the morning, but they're having a bad morning. They're like, geez, why is he pounding me? Like, yeah. I was kidding. Oh, I forgot to put the wink on the end. Oh, excuse me. You know I mean? it's, it's so powerful. It changes everything. Oh, my gosh. I also do a little bit worry that our, like, the English language is going to be non-existent. And I'm finding in myself someone, a lover of words and language. It's like one of my passions. And I can see over the last like five years that I'm like, I don't have the words to describe what this emoji would do, would so quickly do. It's like that part of my brain is like atrophying emojis. And then I don't know if you're a GIF user, but that's the other thing that it's like, you know, the little, little I'm videos. not, but people oh, send me, not. send me GIFs. Um, we could work on emojis 2.0. Emojis could gain a little bit more of a, a context or an art or a little poetry or a little slyness to them. Or, or uh, you know, my favorite one's the wink, just because I love winks. And I'm happiest in my life when I have my wink. There you go. There you go. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Well, Matthew, this was such a delight. I could go on. I'm so grateful that you spent your time with us and in this community and sharing your journey and uh, your pluck-ups along the way. And I hope that anyone that's listening feels inspired and encouraged and most importantly, I think, a little bit less alone. Hey, great talk. Great talk talk to you. That was that was a really fun conversation. And I wrote, I, I mean, that, that dopamine release evolution. It's something, that's right? Good. It's that's, something. That's, that's at least to understand. It's a simple, great way yeah. To go, here's where we are. It's objective. Yeah. And then we have something to go off of that can actually be like productive in the right direction, but with like, I think, pretty important information for us to have as humans. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, let's I look forward to our next conversation. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you go deep chats with Matthew McConaughey. I hope that you enjoyed that. I hope you learned something. I hope you felt inspired and encouraged. And I really hope that you just feel a sense of pluck when you listen to that story, that you feel just a sense of boldness, of getting after it, of making mistakes, of learning from those mistakes, of giving yourself grace, of falling forward, and all of the things that we stand for here in the plucking up community. And I'd love to know what you thought about the show. So you can do that in a couple different ways. You can go to Apple Podcast and you can subscribe and review the podcast and let me know what you thought about the episode and the show. You can find me on Instagram at Liz Bohannon and we can chat about it over there. But basically what I want now is for us to all feel like a big group of friends that's going to chat <laughs> about our big group conversation with Matthew McConaughey. Big thanks as always to my amazing producers at Human Group Media. All right, you guys, that's all. We'll catch you again in the next episode. And until then, stay plucky.